now I want to take a time to talk about um, my show sponsor, which is Live to Fight Design. Uh, if you checked out the episode with Sean Clemens, he's the owner of uh, Live to Fight Design. And uh, what he makes is uh, banners, fight banners for fighters and also gyms, fight gyms. And uh, I have a promo code with Live to Fight Design, which is Todd Atkins, my first name, T-O-D-D. Last name Atkins, A-T-K-I-N-S, all together. So if you use my promo code, you get $20 off your order. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, get a pretty good banner made for yourself. High quality and uh, ships them out pretty fast. So, you know, I appreciate him. Take He's the first guy who's taking interest in sponsoring this show. And uh, I'm proud to have someone who's involved in the fight game rather than someone who's not sponsoring the show. So check out live to fight design so live and then the number two so live to fight design on instagram that's where you could contact sean clemens if you have interest in purchasing a banner from him and if you use my promo code you get 20 dollars off the order so please support uh, live to fight design and hope you enjoy this episode All right, so it's Todd Atkins here, and I'm here with Miguel Adorati from the MMA Museum Project, MMA Collector, MMA Museum Podcast. And uh, today we're going to do kind of a step away from some of the things that we do. We're talking about current events. We're going to talk about Joe Silva, you know, kind of his rise in the UFC and maybe a little bit of his disappearance. <laughs> a lot of people don't. There's only limited information on that. But we're going to have time to talk about Joe Silva today. And uh, as always, before we start, I have a sponsor, Live to Fight Design. You can find them at Instagram, Live to Fight Design. And if you use my promo code, which is up there in red, you can get $20 off your order for Fight Banner or Gym Banner. And Miguel, so I kind of wanted to get into, you knew Joe Silva, you know, kind of talk me through the early days of his rise with the UFC and his rise in MMA in general. All right. Uh, Joe uh, was from the East Coast. Uh, he lived near D.C., Virginia, North Carolina, in that area. I know where he lives, but, you know, I don't need people stalking him either. <laughs> so, you know, but we used to exchange, exchange tapes is, is one of the ways we start to know each other. Um, the communication method that a lot of people use in those really old days, I'm talking about the 90s, is America Online. And being on, there was a message board on there, and he was Joe Silva. Um, and, uh, you know, there were other people on there. Joe Gold from uh, uh, for Full Contact Fighter was Bandog 7, you know. So you, you're there are people around still from those old, old MMA days. Joe was there. I believe Joe, in an interview, before he stopped doing interviews, say, said he went to uh, his first UFC for UFC 3. And my understanding of his story is that he walked in there kind of as a fan, but he had an awareness of like the Japanese scene and, and a few things of that nature that um, he's, he was also a good speaker. So I think he, at that point, sort of introduced himself to Myra Witts and Art Davey and those people. And then, you know, he showed up at UFC 4 again and, and UFC 5, and all of a sudden he's in their ear. At some point... Um, and this is deservedly so. I think he was adding knowledge and depth to them, especially Bob Meyerowitz. Bob, at some point, 
uh, paid him, started paying for his trip to the UFC instead of him, you know, going by his own dime. And at some point may have gotten, you know, $500 to him too, you know, for every show. So he was getting a little consulting fee and stuff like that. That number's in my head, but it's so long ago, I, I may be off on that. Maybe somebody else 500 bucks. But at some point, Joe Silva's relationship with the UFC became less of a guy who shows up and more of a guy that's got some power um, and has the ear of the owner to give advice, a consultant. So he was a, a consultant um, in the early days. He was a young man at that point. Um, when Art Davey uh, left the UFC, John Peretti replaced him as the matchmaker. And from talking to Bob Meyerowitz and uh, Art Davey at different occasions, um, Joe wasn't ready to assume that role at that point yet. And that's why they, they liked Peretti. Peretti was a big name. They needed a big name. Joe was sort of helping Art and doing a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Joe would have liked the job probably by then. And Joe probably could have done it by then. But they chose to get Peretti in a full, you know, uh, guy with experience and that had was known in the business as more than Joe. Joe didn't have the reputation yet as a UFC matchmaker. So he would he he was young. So he didn't get maybe the first time he went in for the UFC matchmaker job under Meyerowitz, he didn't get it. He wasn't really in the running. Peretti shows up, he stays around, you know, and I think this is is the first hint of some survivability there. Because um he you know, him and Peretti managed to work together. Peretti didn't fire him, nobody got rid of, you know, he survived that era. And when Zufa purchased the UFC, if you look at it. Art Davies gone. John Peretti had a, a rival offer to buy the company, so he was out of the running and moving on. Meyerowitz wasn't really, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if he stayed on as a consultant or if he took phone calls from people or whatever, but, you know, he didn't stay on in any type of visible capacity. The only person from the old to the new that was there is Joe. You know, to a certain extent, John McCarthy, but McCarthy didn't last that long before he pissed Dana off at some point, you know, with being too much of a rap, this, that, you know, Dana and John, it's not like Joe, Joe, you see what Joe did. Joe was the transitional figure inside the matchmaking and all that stuff. McCarthy has to be out of that. So, you know, Joe was definitely the most powerful figure that went from the original company, SEG to Zufa. Dana needed Joe at that moment. Joe was at that point, the strongest he was ever going to be. Yeah, now maybe talk a little bit about. I know you kind of talked about your relationship with them trading tapes. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think it's something that's interesting for people that maybe weren't around then. They can kind of understand that world that was so important back then that's probably not important at all now. No, no, now it's like hey, you get a link or you see a link or, you know, you check YouTube, you can see a portion of the fight or some distorted version. Everybody thinks they saw the fight or whatever. It's much more saturated. But or back fight in pass. Old, yeah, and, and there you're getting a good clean version. You know, back in the old days of the beginning of the sport, you'd catch the UFC. Let's say you're, you're you know, you saw UFC on pay-per-view from the first one. 
you know, from the first one to the second one, it's like five, six months. And literally, people wait five, six months. You probably didn't think much about fighting. Oh, yeah, I remember that UFC, but that concept of a league or the next fight or anything like that, I don't think it was fully planted yet, right? So yeah, then UFC 2 pops up. And, you know, if you're someone like a Joe Silva, you're aware of the scene in Japan where, you know, Shudo's been operating for a while. Pancrase predated the UFC. And you're familiar with that in world enough that you're able to get somebody in Japan to make a VHS copy and mail it to you. So Joe had a very valuable piece of knowledge there, you know, that would help him as a foundation for his job was that he actually saw a lot of the really early fighters. And he's, so he was right there at the roots of the, to see it start developing. And he had a very good idea of that stuff. Like I, you know, I may not agree with everything he ever said, but he had always a good way of, of trying, you know, to keep things in, in, in a sportive way, you know? So um, his judgment was good. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons he stayed on, but when he went from Zufa or he was now a Zufa employee, there was little bumps in the road there, here and there. And him and Dana butted heads. But at some point, you know, Dana, we now know, is, you know, kind of an overwhelming force. So, you know, but I think Joe was his foil in the company for a long time until Dana was able to do what Joe, you know, until that Dana could replace Joe and at least get somebody else in there to also do the job. What did they, you know, keep adding weight class until Joe clerically can't handle, you know, eight weight classes. So they take the lightweights and under and give them to a new guy. And then you hear a new guy there. And then the new guy's got an assistant and stuff like that. I think, you know, every one of those is chipping away at Joe. And they, you know, Joe stayed on probably long enough to secure himself. You know, he's in a good position to make good money there. Especially, I don't see him as a huge lifestyle guy. Like, he wasn't about like partying after the UFCs or anything like that ever. He was very serious. So, Hopefully he socked away some money and now he's living a good, you know, a good life. He deserves it because I think, like I said, he, he was one of the first people that Dana uh, had to clash with and Dana couldn't just get rid of. Maybe the only, maybe the only one who lasted that long as well. You know, now Dana's surrounded by Hunter's buddy and this, that, and you know, it's a buddy club. Joe Silva was not a part of that. I think there was some testimony that was making the rounds in terms of something he gave in uh, Joe appeared in the, uh, in the, you know, the salary lawsuit the UFC is involved in. And you can tell in that discussion how Dana and the Fertitas limited, limited him and that he wasn't the true maker there. There were times there that he has to deliver a message you know, like, okay, you're cut, you're walked and stuff. That wasn't his message. He, he's giving the boss's message out. And you got to do that sometimes. You know, that's that's what mid-management is because, he, you know, he does have to do what the bosses say, oddly enough, you know. But there, you know, you do get into feelings and touchiness inside. And Joe really, you know, had his guys, had ways and guys that he might want to give chances to. And then other guys he didn't like. He was very much of that. And him and Dana clashed in there, but I think they kept him at like, yeah, you play around with the undercards. You know, yeah, he needs twenty. You need 20000 for this next fight. Yeah, sure, give it to him. What does Chuck need? Liddell, okay, you know, now you're talking. 
they separated him. They let him play that he didn't even have to ask for money. They never challenged him because he understood that when the UFC paid less than two and two for fighters. He was there in the management teams that did that. Peretti, etc. Those were down days. So to jump somebody up a huge amount wasn't in his nature. So he managed the under budget well enough that he never had to ask for money. And he, so he never had to be turned down. And this is a good arrangement. But it really does seem like they cut him off at some point. How much do you think? Well, let me ask you this. There's been, I don't know if you looked at the Twitter, like they handle Joe Silva's stories. There are a lot of those making the rounds amongst fighters. <clears throat> Maybe I should have had you look at that before we did this. But, you know, it seemed like he kind of had a bad reputation as far as like he wasn't all that nice to some of them. I would say. Yeah, I, I think I think he, he started to reflect Dane a little bit, that you have to kind of come across as like, yeah, I can just replace you. I don't need you. I, that was, I think, the overwhelming attitude. I think Joe had a few things against him in that I, I think that that, like I said, you got to get bad news. If you're not prepared to give that bad news, then how you give it becomes, you know, maybe hurt a little bit. So maybe he was brash or, you know, and the other part is that physically he's a small guy. And now you're talking about fighters and stuff like that. And I can't tell you how many dozens, and I'm talking about dozens of fighters have mentioned that little, you know, so-and-so, or I would kill him. You know, I could smash him with one finger, you know, so being small and, you know, yelling, you know, you suck at, you know, guys that are very good and stuff like that. There's an art to doing it, and sometimes maybe he didn't handle that as, as well as possible. He also had fighters that will say that he was firmly on their side and helped them, got them fights, and helped them out in a myriad of different ways as well. So, you know, I don't hold that against him. I think that in many of those occasions, it's probably him having to give a message that Dana says, you know, all right, I listen to you. You disagree. Now go do what I say anyway. And I think that that, that sums up what I would it's an educated guess, but it's a guess on what that relationship was like. But I think it's very much like that. Now, I remember you mentioned something about Jeff Osborne, wasn't he? I don't know if he were kind of their, their uh, stories intersect. Am I wrong about well, that? Yeah, here, no, no. Um, you know, this is an interesting story because... Um, the way this works is this, is if you look at the history of the UFC, I believe Jeff Osborne did seven or eight uh, UFC pay-per-views on, or seven or eight UFC shows on Mike in Joe Rogan's job, doing Joe Rogan's job before Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan replaced him. Joe Rogan replaced him uh, mainly because I believe that uh, Lorenzo didn't like Jeff. And I think it really just comes down to didn't like his delivery style, you know, and, and that sort of stuff. So even though he has a lot of credo and a lot of respect in the business, that is the, the stuff that the Portillas didn't really give a shit about. So the, they, they, but the reason he had that job is because he was a friend of Joe's, that Joe got him in is, you know, Joe got him at least the interview, the chance. Here's a guy that the hook and shoot tapes, you listen back to him and you listen to what he's commentating on the fights, he's doing an excellent job. But that's literally him 
in his basement in the old days, but still in his basement with editing equipment, editing it and literally in his basement saying, yeah, I can barely hear myself above the crowd because he's dubbing in things later and was doing things. Yeah. But a guy that does things like that homemade to get an interview for that job, I, I believe Joe Silva facilitated that. Said he's good. He I, I vouch for the fact that his information that he gives about the fights is spot on most of the time. And he was there for seven or eight shows. Now, Frakita didn't like him, but it this is so this is the going away of a Joe person and now another California person who would eventually become a multimillionaire many times over. It looks like, you know, Joe wasn't in that clique. And that's, I think, what it looks like. Osborne is the main example because he had a visible job for the UFC. Um, he's the main example of a guy that, at the end of the day, I think the Fertitas and Dana now, if they even remembered that, they would still say that, you know, that was small-time stuff, and then what they were had in mind was so much bigger. You know, Rogue, we launched Rogan into Hollywood stardom and stuff like that. And, you know, that's how they do – that's how they roll, and Jeff doesn't roll that way. At the end of the day, I think they'll, they'd still think they made the right move, right? But it, if we're looking at Joe Silva's history, that was a key example of Joe people getting moved away from, from the show. Um, that also happened with friends like that Joe might have had and supporters like Joe Gold or, you know, like people on press row that, you know, counted on him to get them a UFC pass in the old days. And he maybe had, you know, Joe definitely had a network of people that talked to him. Hey, you went to that King of the Cage? How'd that guy look? This, that, and the other stuff. Joe was no dummy. He wanted to, to be a matchmaker, and he was working on that. The key to me in that job is seeing fights. And that's what he did with the tra tape trading and then that network of people. But cu cutting him off from that, if, at the end of the day, the UFC matchmaker doesn't need to do anything but go to the mail and get his tapes or go to his email now and get the video that they attached, and there's your tryout. You don't need to hit the road to see fighters or know a guy who's going to go to a show to see if you can get, you know, somebody who's been interesting and stuff. But that's where Joe comes from. So, you know, Osborne would have been the biggest, but there were there was a, a cutting off of old guard people and bringing in of new people that left Joe a lot weaker. Yeah, I mean, Joel Gold, Ryan Bennett, there are several of them. Yeah, you know, uh, Eddie Goldman was another very violent one. He was a Peretti person, you know, but he was a longtime guy that's been reporting on the sport. And, yeah, he's got his website, and that's how he does it, you know. Most people in those days went to guys like that for news on this sport, but they they had they cut him out, brought in an ESPN guy who didn't know anything, but he took pictures, put it on, you know, the progression's there. But there were a lot – that that moving of the old guard, like I said, that weakened Joe because – that network of people were people that rooted for Joe. We want people wanted Joe to be the UFC matchmaker after, especially after Peretti left. I mean, what else could they do? Now, <clears throat> how much do you think he walked away from with the sale? You think he just never have to work again and that's why he disappeared? I would think that I, I would think that I would give him credit for managing his money well. Like I said, I don't think he was a lifestyle guy. You know, it wasn't him, you know, partying in Cancun on New Year's ever. You know what I mean? And uh, so I, I think so. I think he had access in a position where um, he should have enough money 
hopefully to live the rest of his life. And he would deserve, he deserves that in my book. I don't begrudge anything. He had a, a really tough position. I think he he walked away trying to do it as ethically as possible. But I think that yes, yeah, some of it, you know, wasn't his style. And if you're not running this like a sport and you're running it more of like a spectacle, you might butt heads with him because he was a purist that way. And at that point, you know, you're butting heads with the boss all the time. The boss wants you gone. The boss bought in another matchmaker. All of a sudden now there's two of you and you got to go to meetings and stuff that, you know, the, the, the progression of getting rid of Joe, it took him a while. So I, there was a point in the early days of Zufa where he had gone from the East coast and gone and gotten an apartment in Vegas. So, you know, he's, he's already transitioned and, and, and the decision was made to keep that sort of stuff. And there, there was a period where because of a falling out, he went back to the East Coast and left Vegas for a while. And at some point, some type of reconciliation was made. And, you know, if that meant stock or, you know, some percentage or, you know, something like that, he should be comfortable. You know, keep in mind, um, I would consider that also within the realm of light the fighters. You know, you're talking about the guy who was your management for 10 years and was your only guy who actually knew a network in the fighters and the sport. And, you know, okay, this guy's in Japan. I could reach here and reach him and this. You know, that stuff comes with experience and time. That guy was Joe, so they needed him. So at some point, I'm sure they took care of him. But just like the fighters, I'm sure he was actually probably underpaid. You know, just like the old Sherdog, you hear the Sherdog story where Jeff Sherwood, after ages of dedicating his life to the website, sold it for a million dollars. And everybody's like, a million dollars? But now in retrospect, it really was worth it. He had done so much groundwork and it was still a respected site now because of that groundwork from, from the old days. In, in my estimation, probably it was worth a lot more than a million bucks. I bet Jeff at times thinks that this day, these days as well, you know? So, yeah, I think, I think that there's, there's the, the guys that became generational monies, Rogan, Dana, you know, they're on that other side of the line. Not And Joe Silva is on this side of the line, including the fight. I find ironic that they replaced him with Sean Shelby, who kind of came from the same background. You know, he was around in the old days. He was a guy who had website, MMA ring report, you know. Look, by the time Shelby became on, Dana was already a media personality. Whenever that was, because Dana did that quick. And Dana got rid of Joe, like Joe doesn't do, did, at some point you can see a very finite moment where he never did another interview again. So he became an office worker. And Dana became the personality. And now you've got years of that, and then after a while they're doing another weight class, you know, five years till 2008 or whatever, when they absorbed WEC. Whatever the exact history is, it was a few years, and then Sean Shelby comes on, and Dana at that point either is going to give the job to somebody who knows how to do it or he's going to do it himself and doing it himself. Like I said, there's a clerical aspect to the job where, you know, you're sitting there, you know, 
we're talking to a lawyer and trying to get the lawyer to change language on a contract for a specific person. Maybe it doesn't really happen in the UFC, but you can, you get the idea back and forth. Did you get that signed? Is that, did you get, is that signature clear? Especially back in the old days, all that clerical work, he doesn't want to do that. That's what he has Joe for. So I'm not surprised he hired somebody who was competent and in the business at that point. Now, what do you think the agreement was contractually like? Do you think we'll ever see him resurface to talk about anything? When I left Bodog, there was a part of an agreement in the original contract was that um, I wouldn't give details out about certain aspects of the business, especially things I might have heard about the gambling business or whatever. So I would augment that for Joe as he left. You know, Art Davey talks about how when he left Zufa, it was there was already in his contract there was a non-compete clause that had expired, so he actually could go out and do another show. But yeah, these things are always handled by contract at, at a, after a certain level. So it's not surprising to me that Joe, you know, so after 10 or 12 years, he's going to leave. You know, they're going to give him, look, here's your stock options. You can cash that out. There's 1.6 million for you. You know, walk away, never talk about us again. Hey, you know, I, and I'm making completely making up numbers there. But, you know, um, it's something like that. And at that point, you put your life into that. You're going to walk away anyway. You know, it's not really in a position where it's like, all right, you, you want to keep doing that job. I'm sure it was exhausting. You're going to take the money and you walk away. You walk away with some dignity, not all of your dignity. I, I think that would best describe Joe. I don't think I don't think he's the happiest with, every, you know, I think him, him painted as a bad guy at this point in the history of this sport is really misclassifying him. Like I know the, the, the fighters can complain about him for whatever X reasons and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, like I said, a, a lot of that I think was forced on his personality because he was asked, you know, handling it. He was handling it at a different, higher level, you know, and Dana is the guy who was like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Cut Tito. Huh? You know, it's it's like those are they go call Tito and tell him he's fired. I don't even want to talk to him anymore. And Joe would have to do that. I don't know, you know, if that particular scenario, like I say, I'm just example, but over the years, I I think that the the way fighters talk about him when he wasn't on their side, it it sounds a little bit like he's assuming the personality of the company and the boss more than doing it his way and being I think he was a little bit more of a communicator than they allowed him to be. And I think that that kind of stings a little bit. So here, here's your walk away package, 1.6 million. Yeah, by the way, Dana just blew that on his kid's, you know, uh, high school graduation party. So th there's levels to the game, you know. And so Joe didn't, Joe, like I say, he's clearly on this side of the fence. Underpaid, even along with the fighters and stuff like that. And a guy I think was going to, at the end of the day, probably go down misunderstood, especially if he doesn't resurface and tell his side of the story. It's interesting, interesting topic for sure. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to kind of share your uh, relationship with Joe, you know, as a, from back in the day. And uh, 
before we go, I want you to kind of talk about what you're doing on your stuff with the MMA museum and the podcast, maybe some of the shows you've done lately. Well, the, uh, the collector stuff we keep putting out, I think the episodes come out every five days. So, you know, every five days you get hit with a new piece of memorabilia. We had, you know, Mark Hall's pants from UFC seven. And we looked at some of the old poker chips that the UFC had put out and, we looked at a pride trophy. And so we do the whole gamut of try to touch on history uh, with the MMA collector stuff and, you know, look at that stuff. And then on the uh, uh, MMA museum podcast, I just interviewed Jennifer Howe, a real woman's pioneer and uh, Dave Strasser, an old friend of mine uh, is one of the recent podcasts or one, I think that one comes out next week. So um, just having fun doing it, just getting people's stories, you know, on the record kind of thing. And uh, that's what the MMA Museum is all about. You, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, the roll call there would be a long list of people that uh, that are interesting. Everybody's got an interesting story. Let's just bring it out. Yeah, I, I was at Strasser's fight with Ronald John in Super Brawl. I don't remember which one it was, but a long time ago. Did he lose that fight? He did, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Dave, Dave, Dave is a pretty good. Uh, he's moved on. He's a school teacher now. Yeah, teaching. He's like he, I, he. He's teaching math to like ninth graders. It's like who the who the thought? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So he's moved on with his life. But when he talks back on his career, I think he's pretty grounded and and, and not bitter. And I think that's one of the things I look for is guys that you know. It's all right if guys get like shed a tear and be like, man, I didn't make, you know, I, I could have done better and stuff like that. But no, I'm talking about guys, you know, a different level of bitter, like you find in boxing kind of bitter, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm glad that like, we avoid those on certain occasions. You're worried about it. Maybe this guy's going to be bitter and uh, hasn't been the case yet. So I'm happy. Yeah. Well, as always, I appreciate taking the time to shed some more light. I think there's a lot of episodes that we could do like this. Cause there's all kinds of stuff from back in the day that, you know, a lot of people that had a lot of impact, but that people don't necessarily know about not just yeah. fighters, but certain things. And uh, yeah. yeah I don't for, think, I think unless, unless someone like Joe gold, like if Joe gold, Eddie Goldman, Joe, you know, they gave an opinion of from back in those days. that's a little different than mine. I respect that because, you know, they may have seen Joe a different way or had a relationship with him that was a little different, but I don't think you can find too many people who go back that, that far, you know? Um, and that's Joe's true history. Like I, you know, when Joe was an assistant to Art Davey, uh, uh, Joe told me this story and I confirmed it with Art Davey many, many years later, but Art Davey after Don Fry won, I think it was the ultimate ultimate, the second one. Um, Art Davies said, oh, yeah, by the way, Joe, you, you're going to have to go back. And Don is, you know, a handful at, at all times, you know, approach Don and give him bad news at your own risk. You know what I mean? And Art Davies made Joe go and, and be like, hey, I got to take the belt back from you. It's, I, we're, we're, you know, it's not your belt to keep. And it, Art did that to him as a joke, it, it, kind of breaking in the new kid and stuff like that. So, but that's, you know, you can research, that was 97, you know, that was a long time ago that he was around. And, you know, believe it or not, that little story there 
that's cutting your teeth to do that job, you know? So he had the right background. He was how people remember him. It's okay. But when he was that green guy being bossed around by Art Davey, you, the, the sport really had a friend. And at some point, you know, he became more of a business person with the UFC. I think he had to more than anything else. And uh, that's my story. That's my remembrance of Joe Silva. I have a lot of remembrance. I like them. Yeah. I'm, I want to thank you for the time and, you know, to shed your uh, kind of knowledge on the topic. And uh, for anybody that, you know, supports these episodes, as always, I appreciate it. And until the next one, take care. Yeah, but... Right, so I want to thank all of you for checking out these episodes and supporting this uh, podcast. Now, I know I don't put these out in real time. If you want to catch these episodes in real time, you can do so at my YouTube, which is Todd Atkins Show. And uh, please subscribe there. And if you like this podcast, share it with some people. Subscribe to it. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to get out more episodes here soon. So as always, I appreciate all the support. And thanks, guys, and take care.